0: Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, AKA Triumvir Clio. Hello again, welcome back. Happy Memorial Day, if you celebrate and are listening on the day this drops. And if not, happy whatever day it is, a very merry unbirthday, unless it is your birthday, in which case, happy birthday. I think that covers all bases. (laughs) Today, today we start a new playwright. And I get to enjoy a lovely Dina Burke translation that's not in the public domain. Uh, You can find it too, I'm sure. There are libraries. You can buy it from your local bookstore. Or you can read the public domain translations that are available online. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I should introduce our playwright first, Publius Terentius Affair, or simply Terence. He lived from around 195 to 159 BCE, making him a contemporary of Plautus. He was brought to Rome as a slave. The name Afer suggests that he was African, so he may have been from Tunisia or Libya. Um, as I've noted before, the Mediterranean world is a lot smaller than we, and by we I mean people who live in the United States like I do, may imagine. it. It is, it is much smaller, much smaller than you think. When I lived in Rome, we would get sand from the Sahara blowing up, and then everybody got bronchitis. It was fun. It happens every year. Anyway, back to Terence. We have six extant plays by Terence, and from what we know, that's most of them. Uh, just like we saw with Plautus, Terence based his plays on Greek originals, and the story goes that Terence went off to Greece to gather more source material and he never was heard from again. Ooh, Perhaps he was shipwrecked and died, and that's why he only wrote six plays. Because, of course, he had, like I said before, he was a slave. He had to be freed before he could start writing. He was about 35 when he died. Um, I have a source who did bad math and came up with 25, and I was looking, that's not right. I think they forgot... They counted the wrong way. I don't know. Anyway, he was he was about thirty five. But again, he had to be freed first. So he didn't he didn't have a very long career. Uh, so he it could be that he he died, and that's why he only wrote six plays. It could be that he only wrote six plays. Period. That you know he just i be sure he was never heard from again. But that doesn't mean that he died immediately. It could be that he just never found never found anything inspiring to continue writing. Um, the plays are, in approximate chronological order, Hekira, Andrea, Hutantimorumenus, Formio, Unicus, and Adelphoi. And that is the order in which we will tackle them. So today we start with Hekira, or the mother-in-law. I, as I already said, am using Dina Berg's translation. Um, my text is from 1999. I don't know if that's exactly the date of the translation, but that's the copy. That's the publication date that I have. You should be able to find the Henry Thomas Riley translation for free online. That one's old. It's in the public domain. He's perfectly serviceable. Obviously, if you can get something more recent, I recommend it. I really do like Dina Berg as a translator, so I'm I'm very happy to have her translation. Hikira premiered around 165 BCE. And it was performed at least two more times that we know of. And um, yeah, I'm going to save that for the summary because it is all described in the prologue. So yeah, we'll get back to that. Hekira uh, is based on a couple of Greek plays that no longer survive. Um, it includes the usual stock characters that that we're familiar with. You will see it listed sometimes as a later play of Terence's, and that's because of these multiple performances that we know about. Um, I did find one paper that argues that it really should be considered the first. I have other sources that say Andrea is the first, but I already had it first on my list of Terence to do. So Hakira, we're doing first, and we'll do Andrea as our next Terence instead. They premiered around the same time, anyway. Uh, our characters, uh, usual stock characters. We've got some courtesans. We've got Philotus, Syra, and Bacchus. We have a love-struck young man, of course. His name is Pamphilus. His father is Lacchys, and his mother is Sostrada. The family slave is Permino. Pamphilus is already married to Philomena, whose name we hear but who never actually appears on stage. She has no lines. She is referenced a lot, but we never actually hear from her. Her father is Phidippus, and her mother is Myrina, and their family slave is Sosia. The play is, of course, set in Athens, and the stage is set in the manner that we're used to. The, uh, we actually use all three of the houses, those upstage entrances. We've got uh, the house of Phidippus, the house of Lockees, and the house of Bacchus. There's also a shrine to Venus on stage. Uh, And then the right and the left entrances, as usual, go to the forum or to the harbor. So with our scene set, we will take a short break before going through the plot. The play opens with a multi-part prologue. The first prologue is from the second performance. It introduces the title and explains that everyone missed the first performance because the circus set up next door and the audience ran out to see the tightrope walkers instead. So Terrence made some edits because he refuses to serve leftovers. And since you've seen Terrence's other plays, please watch this one too. Then, we get the prologue from the third performance. After much digression, we learn that the second performance was interrupted by someone shouting GLADIATORS in a crowded theater, which had the same basic effect as shouting FIRE, although there's no record of people dying. So Terrence is going to try again. Sit down, behave, and watch the freakin' play. The actor delivering the prologue exits, and Philotas and Syra enter from Bacchus' house. Philotas bemoans the lack of good customers. The men all swear to be true, and then they go and get married and stop buying her services. Syra, being older and wiser and with better insurance, responds by saying that that's why she always says not to get emotionally attached to one's clients. Parmino enters from Lockie's house. He's heading to the harbor to see if Pamphilus is home. You see, the young man has been off on business for several months, and he's due home today. Parmino is thrilled to see Philotus, and content to see Syrah. He sits down to chat with the two women, and we get the rest of the background of the plot. Pamphilus had been in love with Bacchus, but then his father pestered him to get married until he actually did. Pamphilus married the girl next door, but he got gold feet. He didn't really want to marry her. He was still in love with Bacchus. Now, I mean, he didn't get cold enough feet not to get married, but he never consummated the marriage. And now he's stuck. He doesn't want her, but he can't divorce her because then their lack of marital relations will be revealed. So he did the only logical thing and ran away for a while. And his father runs off to live At their farm in the country, so that hopefully, you know, Philomena, the bride, can be more content, stuck living with her mother-in-law. Well, at least for a while. Because then, Philomena just went crazy. Sostrida, her mother-in-law, insists that she doesn't know why their relationship fell apart. But eventually, Philomena ran off home, and she refuses to come out. And because the only purpose of this scene is to set up the plot, the three characters say farewell and exit to go about their business, and honestly, we never see either um, Philotas or Sierra again. <laughs> Lockhees enters from his house, followed by Sostrata. He is furious that Sostrata has gotten into some sort of argument with their daughter-in-law, leading to the young woman running home to her own mother. Sostrada insists that she has no idea what caused it. They were getting on great until one day, Philomena just stopped speaking to her. Sostrada would walk into the room and Philomena would get up and leave. She has no idea why this behavior changed. Uh, The argument between Lockhees and Sostrata is interrupted by the entrance of Phidippus. Phidippus calls back into his house to Philomena. He tells her that he should force her to go back to her husband's house, but she's his little girl and he just can't say no to that face. Lockhees is thrilled to see his neighbor. Surely Philomena's father can clear up the reason that she ran back home but phidippus is as clueless about the matter as sostrata is except for the fact that philomena is adamant that she won't go back until her husband has returned home and he has no intention of forcing his daughter to do something she doesn't want to do phidippus and lakis exit to the forum sostrata throws up her hands tells the audience that she's innocent in this matter and exits back into her house pamphilus and parmino enter from the harbor Hamflis grumbles about his love-struck state. He married Philomena because he was told to, even though he was in love with another woman, and now his wife has run back to her parents because clearly she and his mother can't get along. I mean, someone must be to blame. Oh, just wait until we get who really is to blame. Unless you've already read ahead, in which case you know. Anyway. Pamphilus tells Permina to go inside and announce his arrival, but before Permino gets a chance they hear a commotion, including Marina telling Philomena to keep quiet. Pamphilus decides that he must find out what is going on with his wife and he runs into Phidippus' house. Permino shrugs and says there is no way he's getting into the middle of this mess. Yesterday everyone blamed Sostrata, and he doesn't want to risk everyone deciding to blame him instead. Sostrata enters. She's heard the commotion next door as well and is worried. Permino stops her before she gets to the door, though, reminding her that they won't let her in anyway. She is relieved to learn that Pamphilus is home and hopes that he'll help Philomena feel better. Pamphilus enters in tears. As she dries his eyes, Sostrata grills her son about the condition of her daughter-in-law he does his best to answer her questions without actually answering any of them until she eventually goes back into her own house. Pamphilus sends Parmino off to fetch their baggage handlers. Parmino grumbles that they they could find their way home by themselves, but he does as told and exits to the harbor. Pamphlets soliloquizes about what he has discovered inside. You know, how they say you should never ask a woman if she's pregnant unless you see the baby crowning? Yeah, that's what Pamphlis discovered inside. It seems that shortly before the wedding, a stranger had his way with Philomena and stole her ring, which makes it sound like this was not a consensual encounter. Marina begged Pamphilus to say the baby was is his or just keep quiet about it while Marina takes care of it. Um, exposure, as you may recall, was not an uncommon practice for dealing with unwanted babies. And then he can just take Philomena back as though nothing has happened. As if he could do that... Pamphilus has to stop talking, though, because he sees Parmino and the baggage handlers coming, and he doesn't want anyone to know about the baby. Parmino and Socia and the baggage handlers all enter from the harbor. Socia leads the handlers off into Lockhees' house. In order to keep Parmino away for a while, Pamphilus makes up an errand for him. He tells Parmino to wait for Colidomedes at the top at. the... It, the temple on the very top of the hill, that that really that really really high hill, that one, he should wait all day if he needs to. Hermino is not thrilled with this, but he dutifully exits. Pamphilus goes back to soliloquizing over what he should do about his marriage and the baby that his wife just had. This time, he's interrupted by the entrance of his father and father-in-law. As far as the old men are concerned, everything should be good now. Philomena was just waiting for Pamphilus to come home, and now he's home. But Pamphilus definitely doesn't want her now, but he can't tell them the truth, so he says that it's because Philomena and Sostrata simply cannot live together in peace, and if he must choose between his wife and his mother, he will always choose his mother. A boy's best friend is his mother, right? And with that, he exits into his parents' house. Locke's and Phidippus then argue over Pamphilus' announcement and what it says about the young man's character, leading to Phidippus storming off into his house. Lockhees, however, decides that this is further proof that the whole matter is Sostrata's fault, and he exits into his house. Marina enters. Phidippus heard the baby cry, and now he knows the real reason Philomino came home. Phidippus enters, and, well, okay, my grandfather was one of those full-term preemies. You know, he was born too close to the wedding date to have been born full-term, so he must have been a preemie, but you'd never know it to look at him. And that's what Phidippus thinks. I mean, this baby was born less than nine months since the wedding, but he looks so big and healthy, so how wonderful! And as we all know, having a baby fixes every problem in a marriage. But Marina reminds her husband that Pamphilus had a thing for that other girl on the street, Bacchus, right? And she thinks that he's still in love with her. Marina suggests that Phidippus go and talk to Pamphilus alone. Philippus starts to, but then he loses his nerve and goes inside his own house instead. Marina throws up her hands and reiterates how her daughter was assaulted and her ring was stolen, and in this telling, it definitely sounds like Philomena was raped. She exits into her house. Sostrada and Pamphilus enter. She believes his tale that Philomena can't stand her and announces that she's going to move to the farm so that the young couple can live in peace in the city. This, of course, doesn't work for Pamphilus because he doesn't want Philomena to come back, so he makes up all sorts of excuses as to why Sostrida shouldn't go. Lockhees enters. He's overheard and realizes that maybe Sostrada isn't such a bad mother-in-law after all if she's willing to move so that their daughter-in-law will feel comfortable in her husband's house. Sostrida exits into the house to pack. Pamphilus tells Lockhees that there's no reason for Sostrada to leave because he's not sure if he even wants to take Philomena back. Phidippus enters. Lockhees tells him that Sostrata is moving to the farm. Phidippus says that we've been blaming the wrong mother-in-law the whole time. All the trouble has been caused by Marina keeping Philomena's pregnancy a secret. Now, Pamphilus is stuck between either acknowledging the child or exposing Philomena as an adulteress. While well, the men argue over whether the cause of all this trouble is Pamphilus's poor relationship with Bacchus. or Sorry, prior relationship with Bacchus. Honestly, it's a pretty long scene, but it doesn't amount to much more than that, and well, I mean, there's also that, and then Phidippus exits to find a wet nurse. To settle things, Lokis sends for Bacchus. She enters. Lokis accuses her of continuing to court Pamphilus as a customer. She replies that she has not done any such thing. Phidippus returns with the wet nurse and sends her off into his house, and then he tells Lockhees and Bacchus to go inside, too, and reassure everyone that Bacchus has ended her relationship with Pamphilus, and they exit. Permino returns from the temple on the hill, having utterly failed to find Colidomedes, since he doesn't exist. Bacchus enters from Phidipis's house, much to Permino's surprise. She tells Permino to go and fetch Pamphilus, which he's in no mind to do, having just spent all day trying to find the fictitious Colidomedes, but she ultimately wins him over, and he exits. Bacchus soliloquizes over how pleased Pamphilus is going to be to learn that she has saved his child, and it's all due to this ring that he gave her about nine, ten months ago. This ring that he stole from a woman he'd raped, and in Bacchus' telling of the tale, there is no doubt about what he did. Well, when Bacchus went into the house just now, Marina recognized the ring as the one that had been stolen off Philomena ten months ago, meaning the baby was Pamphilus's this whole time. Parmino and Pamphilus enter. Parmino has explained everything Bacchus just told the audience, so Pamphilus is caught up on the plot. Pamphilus is relieved by this turn of events and very happy to see Bacchus. She reassures him that his father is still in the dark about all of the details and tells him that his mother-in-law thinks he's a-okay, which I really don't know why. Um, he's a horrible person. I'll come back to that. Parmino is thoroughly confused and Pamphilus refuses to clue him in before exiting into the house. Parmino shrugs and that is where the play ends. this play is problematic. It has some very funny moments, but it does not leave you with a good taste in your mouth. Pamphilus is, as I said, quite simply a horrible person. And the play is all the more disturbing because we hear a lot about Philomena, but we never see her. We never hear her. Well, except for maybe a cry when she's in labor, which... I don't blame her. Uh, She is an object. She is an object to pamphlets when he rapes her before they're even engaged. She is an object when her mother arranges for their marriage to continue once it becomes clear that he is, in fact, the father. It is messy. And especially to a modern audience, it is disturbing. Or at least I hope that it is. I hope that an audience today gets to the end of this play and asks... If this really is a comedy, because it is, it's not funny at the end at all. Um, Now, here's why it's a comedy. Because it's not, (laughs) it's not a tragedy. And the classical definition of a comedy it's what is not a tragedy. There's no middle category. If the play doesn't end with people dying, and it instead it ends with people being married, it must be a comedy, right? The marriage is restored, so it cannot possibly be a tragedy. Not a tragedy. Ergo, it is a comedy. And it's frustrating that Philomena is so removed from the play because the other women that we meet are awesome and there are a lot of them okay I didn't exactly count I think off the top of my head there are at least there are at least five women in this play when does that happen I I don't think we've ever seen this many women with names and speaking roles in one of our ancient comedies um so it, maybe, we've, maybe we've seen more women, but this is the most that we've heard. They get to talk. They get to express themselves. They're smart. Take Bacchus. She only has a few scenes, but she, she is awesome. She plays Lockies and Phidipus like a fiddle when they try to blame her for the breakdown in Pamphlis' marriage. Sostrata is happy to take matters into her own hands and move to the country. And she gets pages to share her feelings, not just with her family, but with the audience. She soliloquizes. We hear her perspective on this matter. We hear from all of these smart women, except for Philomena. Does she want Pamphilus back after what he's done? Doesn't matter. She doesn't get a say in the matter. Because as far as Roman society was concerned, it was all fine. The baby was her husband's, after all, so no breakdown in the marriage. It's all good. Nothing to see here. And this is really frustrating because there are some charming moments in this play. Locke's and Phidippus are honestly, they're they're okay dads. They're clueless, but, but they're good. And we don't always see that in Roman comedy, not not across the board. If there's one father who cares about his kids' feelings, there's usually that one. There's only one. And every other father in the play counts that caring father as being too soft. He's not a proper pater familias. So is that part of what this play is saying? Lockees and Phidippus are weak fathers, which means the women are able to fill in that gap. And that's why this whole mess happens, because because women are in control, I I struggle to find a conclusion that isn't some dark upholding of patriarchy. So, <laughs> on that happy note, what do you think of Hakira? Was it worth the third try to get an audience to sit through it? I, I mean, they're, like I said, they're funny moments. It's hilarious when... The whole, all of the, all of Parmino's scenes are delightful. Maybe they should just cut everything else and just have it be Parmino trying to find Calidamides. That would be a brilliant play. And it, comedy, it would be very funny. Anyway, what, what do you think? Um, is it good that Terrence kept trying and trying, trying to get people to sit through this play? Pop over to the blog and share your thoughts. It's at triumvirclio.school.blog. The URL, maybe a link, are in the show notes, depending on your platform. I'm on Patreon as Triumvir Clio, should you feel so inclined. No reading for the next episode. Uh, We are getting ready to start Virgil, and I think his bio is important enough, detailed enough, long enough that I don't want to try and shove it into the intro of the first of his works. So next up will be an introduction to Virgil. I will talk to you then.